Hello. Hola. Hello. Ni hao. Bonjour. Hi. Buenos dias. Guten tag. G'day. Welcome to the Husida Podcast, a production of the Human Services Information Technology Association. Hello and welcome to episode 12 of the Husida Podcast. My name is Dr. Jimmy Young and I'll be your host. In this month's episode, I interview Dr. Capriya Johnson and Dr. Dana Brookover about their article, Leveraging Technology to Reduce Literacy Barriers on Social Health Screening Tools, Implications for Human Service Professionals and Administrators, which was published earlier this year in the Journal of Technology and Human Services. Dr. Johnson is a tenured full professor at The Ohio State University in the Department of Educational Studies. Her interests are broadly situated in interrogating education and healthcare systems as it relates to addressing social determinants of health needs, equity, access, and justice. Dr. Johnson has held positions at Old Dominion University, Virginia Commonwealth University, and has received over $5 million in grant-funded projects. Dr. Dana Brookover is currently an assistant professor at the University of Scranton in the Department of Counseling and Human Services. She was formerly a licensed professional school counselor in Virginia and received her Ph.D. from Virginia Commonwealth University in 2020. Her research interests include social determinants of health and equitable college and career readiness. I have to admit, I was very excited to connect with them because of our shared experiences of Virginia Commonwealth University, where I completed my doctoral studies. We talked about how they used Universal Design Learning, or UDL, principles in order to develop an electronic screening tool that employed photos and animations and GIFs to help individuals understand the questions on those screening tools and just make it more accessible to everyone. I was surprised to learn that some of the pictures were just normal photographs, but that they actually used hand-drawn pictures as well as animations and GIFs. Dr. Johnson explained how any organization that wanted to utilize photographs in their screening tools can actually find freely available pictures via Google search or various websites. The health screening tools were presented using iPads or tablets, and I think this presents a great avenue to interface with electronic health records and also impact workflow within agencies and community-based clinics. We talked about some ideas for getting started with using technology for health screening tools, collaborations with colleges and universities, as well as with artists and other resources within one's community. They also reminded me about the flexibility of these types of tools and technology and how, if they need to, they could still be printed out on paper. Additionally, utilizing technology and innovating in this way can help with decision-making, tracking data, and other things that can be incredibly useful. Overall, I fully appreciated this discussion and thinking through how organizations and agencies can leverage technology in innovative ways. As usual, I've got some links and other resources out on the Husita blog that accompanies this specific podcast. You'll be able to find Dr. Johnson's Twitter at Dr. Capria, as well as Dr. Brookover's Twitter at Brookover Dana. So I hope you'll go visit that blog, www.husita.org. And now on to the podcast. Welcome to the Husita Podcast. I'm super excited to have Dr. Dana Brookover and Dr. Capriya Johnson with us talking about their recent article from the Journal of Technology and Human Services 
that was published earlier this year, I think. Uh, <laughs> I always forget what, you know, the pandemic year and everything. Leveraging technology to reduce literacy barriers on social health screening tools, implications for human service professionals and administrators. So again, I'm super excited to have you both on the podcast and welcome. Thank you. Super excited to be here. Thanks for having us. So I just kind of want to begin with a super basic question about the paper and the study, a basic overview, any kind of background that you want to share. I mean, as technical or non-technical you want to get, that's that's kind of fine with me. Absolutely. So uh, the paper actually is an interesting concept. One of the things that we were really focused on was using the universal design learning framework in order to increase access to screening tools, right? Uh, we know that some of society's most vulnerable populations are taking these tools and using, and then our providers are using these tools in order to provide resources. However, if people don't understand the tool, if there's literacy barriers, if there's just comprehension barriers, then we're not receiving uh, the right information that we need in order to provide the best resources and quality of care. And so I think that's where it originated from in terms of us wanting to just test out this idea of using animations and pictorial pictures on a screening tool, because you don't typically see that on a screening tool for adults. And so that's where it, it, it started. And from there, we just wanted to test it out, but we didn't want to use a vulnerable population to test out the idea. And so we use college students because we know from our other studies that college students also face a lot of social determinants of health issues. And there's also actually, a, a lot of people don't know this, but there's a lot of variety, variation within uh, reading comprehension and literacy with amongst college students as well. And so that's where uh, the main idea for the study occurred. Dana, you have anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I'll just say so, you know, kind of start off this study was a pilot study where, um, you know, like Dr. Johnson said, we were we developed a social health needs screening tool called the Life Screen Pictorial that utilizes multiple means of engagement. So as mentioned, through pictures and drawings, and then also through text and voice to text recordings. So we were looking, as you know, Dr. Johnson said, at the validity of the tool, but also um, user perceptions of the tool itself, too. That sounds really interesting. And I'm wondering then, what have these health screening tools looked like historically? And then how have you updated them with some pictorials? Are we talking like emojis or uh, what did it look like? That's actually a really good question. Historically, the social needs screening tools are just um, yes or no questions, right? And so it might actually something like, do you have any food security needs over the last 30 days? And it'll have like, yes or no. There are also some screening tools that are social needs screening tools that practitioners have to ask directly to the client. And one of the things that we noted in the literature about that is that a lot of times people don't feel as comfortable um, just addressing those issues with their doctor or with their social worker. Um, and so they might not tell the full truth. They might not say that they have food insecurity issues or housing insecurity issues. Instead, they might just answer those questions with all no's, right? Um, and so we wanted to have a tool where you could answer it by yourself. It could be completely self-directed. And so that's what the pictures allow for. The pictures are also tested out with um, animations in terms of like computer generated pictures, but also we use hand-drawn pictures. And we also looked at uh, what did people prefer? Did they prefer the hand-drawn pictures or did they prefer the computer animated pictures? And so we wanted to really test out what would be best for people. 
and what would, you know, what would make the most sense? What do people feel most comfortable with? What was most helpful um, in people understanding the questions? So really quick, in the article, y'all have some of the, the pictures that were used in the study, the hand-drawn and then the actual photos of things. And uh, it's really quite interesting to see how those were used. Uh, so what did people prefer? I believe it was 32% of our sample preferred the photographs rather than the drawings, but also about 30% said they, they liked both. Interesting. Cause I think about like my artwork, my drawings <laughs> really bad. I just think like stick figures all the way. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, actually me too, <laughs> which, I mean, it was surprising that people were so receptive to the drawings as well as the hand, as well as the um, computer photos. And one of the things that we put in the article is that anyone can do this at their site because you can look on Google. There's a way to look on Google to find mm -hmm. artwork that is free to use. And then also we talked about tapping your population because people have many talents, right? And so just tapping your population and saying, hey, is anyone an artist? Would anyone be interested in drawing out any of these animations? And sometimes we'll be surprised at like who is just willing to help out and who's willing to kind of use their artistry in that way. So there's definitely some options for people who are not as, uh, you know, not having the drawing capabilities. For sure, there's a couple of different options. We actually write about that in the article. Cool, cool. Um, so did I hear you say that some of the, the pictures are actually computer animated? So like they're almost like a GIF or a GIF, depending on what side you're on, or uh, they, they're uh, kind of a live video type of thing? Yeah, some of the pictures are actually not live video, but some of the pictures are GIFs right, from Google. And we look to make sure that they don't have any copyright or anything like that. Those are the free images that you can use. Mm-hmm. That's really, really interesting. So in thinking, I, I get kind of stuck on logistics once in a while, but I, I figure a few folks might want to know like the logistics behind this. Were you just giving them iPads or what did that look like so that folks could see the pictorial displays? For this pilot study, um, because we were working with a sample of participants that were where we were at um, location-wise, we actually had more, it was laptops um, and their own personal devices, or we had those as well. But how we see this being used clinically, we do think that iPads could be really convenient for that, um, having them in the office. That way, um, you know, participants can self-administer the screening tool, but also um, the clinicians, the human services professionals can be there to give assistance if needed. Interesting. So it's almost like it could feed right into an electronic health record and interface with some of those other things like organizations should kind of be innovating towards. I think that's part of what was at least established way back when. That's exciting. I mean, some folks might not think it's that exciting, but I think it's exciting that, you know, these organizations, human service organizations, doctor's offices and whatnot can start to leverage these technologies in this way. So I, I was really excited when I read through the article. You talked in the article a little bit about using uh, universal design language. Did I, did I get that right, UDL, or is it? Yep, universal design learning. Okay, universal design learning. Uh, can you just tell us a little bit more about what that is and kind of how it influenced the development or the design of, of your project? Absolutely. So universal design learning is essentially, um, it's a teacher education theory. And so the theory really focuses on modifying your classroom or modifying education so that it's accessible to all, despite any um, 
um, disabilities or ability statuses, you should be able to modify your education uh, the way you teach so that everyone is, is accessible to everyone. And so it's a little, it's interesting because the thing about UDL is that it's like optimizing teaching for all, right? So we're not saying because there might be some students with um, literacy barriers, we're gonna add pictures. We're saying that adding pictures is helpful for everyone, right? Despite any barriers that might be known or unknown. And so that's really the important thing about UDL is that it's not focused in on um, potential disabilities, right? It's really focused on how do we um, increase engagement? How do we increase representation? How do we increase expression within our teaching, within our learning through using these strategies? And so we know that um, the consumption of pictures is really helpful in getting messages across, right? Like in healthcare, pictures have been used forever, right? If you think about those old, I don't know if you all remember the old CPR cards where they have pictures of showing you how to do the Heimlich maneuver. It's literally the same exact idea that, yes, you could probably read this, but visualizing it really brings home the point. And so we want it um, to have a visual aid with questions that ask something sensitive, right? Because additionally, when you ask sensitive questions, anxiety can take over for people that can then influence comprehension, that can then influence my ability to respond to these questions. And so by looking at something that's familiar, like a GIF, like a picture that's hand drawn um, that shows you these things, it just allows you to really capture the question in a holistic sense versus just kind of reading and being able to comprehend. I'm also reading, comprehending and seeing as well. Yeah, no, I like that. That makes sense because I've been in the doctor's office where you see the pain chart up on the wall and it does have the emoji faces like on a scale of one to 10, tell us what your pain looks like. Or I've even used that in, in practice with some of the kiddos that I've counseled with, like circle the face, right? So I can see how this might be able to take that kind of concept to the next level. Um, Dana, is there anything else you'd like to add related to using UDL in the design of this project? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, human service professionals, we're working to ensure all members of society are having this equal opportunity to be healthy, right? So if our clients and our patients can't provide us information on needs that are there, then we as professionals can't advocate and collaborate with them. So that's why UDL um, is so important, accessibility, you know, within all of our organizations and our work. And then even, you know, just adding on to what Dr. Johnson said, it's helpful for everyone because these visual aids, you know, not only do they increase comprehension and provide more detail, they also just increase attraction to these screening tools and people are more likely um, to want to do them and finish them. So that's important too. That's amazing. I mean, it sounds really great, but I have to ask the question because, you know, all research studies point out the limitations. What were some of the challenges? What were some of the limitations that you found and what kind of things could be improved upon? Dana, you want to take this one? Are you? Sure, definitely. So, you know, we mentioned that for this um, particular study, it was a convenience sample. We write about in our um, article about how it was mostly women. Um, but, you know, for this pilot study, um, again, we wanted to be in a position where we were when we were addressing social determinants of health needs, we were able to follow up and provide wraparound services. But I do think in future research, it could be um, very useful to use this tool and validate it with people who um, are not in a higher education setting. And that could give us just even more nuanced detail on its accessibility, um, just to further extend the implications that we found in this study. 
Did you all get any feedback from the participants about like, well, I mean, you shared in the study about the hand-drawn pictures and the actual kind of real pictures. I don't know how I'd classify that, but uh, you got some of that feedback. Did you get any other kind of feedback from participants about how to improve uh, the screening tool? You know, I think it was interesting, and Dana might have some additional notes on this, but the participants actually overwhelmingly were very excited about taking a tool that had animations on it. And I think at first you were a little bit worried, like, will adults appreciate taking a tool with uh, pictures on there? Will they think that this is not necessary? And overwhelmingly, people even noted, I think we even have this in the paper about the percentage of people who noted that the pictures actually helped them understand the question better, right? And so the for me, one of the things that I thought was most important was that for adults who we would generally assume have a, a different, a higher level of reading ability, found that these pictures were helpful in them understanding the question. I mean, I think that alone was very important, right? Um, and I'm trying to remember, you mentioned something about um, some limitations. And I think, right, I think like Dana said, uh, using the tool in a community-based setting would be helpful and beneficial for us to look at workflow. That's one of the things we want to have additional information on. We want to look at how does this work um, in a community-based clinic, right? Like, does it slow down workflow? When is a good time for them to take this, right? Should they take the tool um, during a session? Should they take it before a session or after a session? And how often? And so some of the limitations are also related to, like, follow-up, right? Should this tool be a pre-post? Um, should it be every six months so that we have a good understanding of um, where, where clients are and if they're using the resources? Uh, the other piece for us was that our tool embedded in their resources, right? So it said, hey, use this web link in order to get resources. The website now is findhelp.org. I think at the time it was Aunt Bertha. But I think that's another important piece of following up to find out, hey, did you actually use the findhelp.org website? Um, that, that is always going to be important when we're assessing for social terms of health needs is finding out, did people actually use that website? Because again, when you go to the website, it goes back to the traditional, just a bunch of words, right? Like, no, there's no pictures. Um, and so I think you know, pairing those two things would be interesting to see if people found like the, the screening tool really, really useful and like, that was helpful, but are the same people able to then utilize the self-directed intervention or do they need the support of the provider to move like their, their actual support for forward? And so finding out more information about workflow is going to be truly, truly important. Then also, you know, honestly, I think one of the other things is finding out if um, community-based health centers, if these centers will have access to someone who could find the pictures to match with the question, someone who could draw the pictures. I could I, I could see that as being, you know, one of the limitations as well. Because you these are questions that you want to modify based on the resources that you have available that you can connect people to, right? We don't want to ask about transportation issues if you have no resources for that. Yeah. And so that that in that way, the questions might look different depending on where you are and what resources you have available. So I was going to kind of save this question towards the end, but I think it might fit better here is because uh, we're, we're kind of getting to this organizational capacity kind of resources stuff with um, the, the providers uh, having the necessary tools either to find pictures or to create or adapt the screening tools in this type of way that y'all have done in the study. So I'm wondering what kind of advice would you give for organizations that might want to adopt y'all's screening tool in this way or kind of start creating something similar on their own? Yeah. 
I think for me, the first point of advice is to be is to collaborate, right? Like collaborate with your local community colleges, with your four-year institutions, with your social work departments, there with the art department. Um, most universities are always excited and thrilled about collaborating with community partners, right? It's just um, um, we're actually always trying to reach out to them. Like, can we help? What can we do? And so I think a community partner reaching out and saying, "Hey, we have a project um, in which we want to animate a social health screening tool." I think people would be very receptive to that. And so the first step would be to collaborate with these, these community partners. There's also art-based community partners in the community, right? Like, so reaching out to art galleries and thinking outside the box on where you can find artists that would be willing to help with a social project like this. I think the other piece is utilizing the resources that are within the organization. Um, You know, the person, um, Peter, who's on, he's an author on this paper who drew some of the actual artwork, he actually drew it he's not, you know, that's not something that I would have known that he could do, right? Like we just were talking about like, who could draw some of the pictures? And he's like, oh, I can, I, you know, I actually draw. Well, he, at the time he was working on his PhD in teaching and learning, right? And so like, it had nothing to do with artistry, but it's just, it goes again to like, um, you never know what the hidden talents are, right? And so using the resources that we have available to us and not limiting that conversation to people who we think would know, right? It's talking to the administrative assistant. It's talking to the to the, um, the the facilities management. It's talking to everyone to figure out, like, do you have a child who is an artist, right? Who might want to draw these pictures. I mean, there's so many different uh, resources out there that I think we have to tap into. It's just a little bit of thinking outside the box sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Now, um, Dana, were you a student when the, this project was undertaken? I was, yes. Um, Dr. Johnson was my advisor when I was a PhD student at BCU. So would you say that maybe this could even be a project that students could be involved in, uh, whether it's at the master's level or undergraduate level, to help some of these human service providers out in the community you know, find pictures or create the art and adapt it into screening tools? Based on your experience, I'm just kind of curious. Yes, certainly. I think it's um, definitely a great opportunity. And even because, you know, we have found, Dr. Johnson and I, and other research that we've done surrounding social determinants of health, that college students are experiencing social determinants of health needs. So it's also that perspective there that they are able to give on um, what the needs might be. Um, I think that, too, is something that they can certainly give great knowledge on if they're working in these sorts of projects. Yeah, that's really interesting. It also makes me think about like levels of um, technological or digital literacies that organizations may need, but also uh, their their consumers or their their service users. Did you find anything? I know your population were were college age uh, was a college age population, but did you find anything related to some kind of level of digital literacies or technological literacy that might be needed? to employ uh, a pictorial digital screening tool? That's a great question. And I think, you know, Dr. Johnson and I have, we have been thinking about that. And even, you know, we're still working on even further iterations of this tool. And one thing that can be really helpful is that voice to text feature and using that um, even in the directions um, for, to begin the screening tool and to move through each question and, um, And also just, you know, what the reading comprehension level is even um, in the directions and as you move through. So I do think that is one way to address that. 
Um, also too, you know, just as with anything in human services, it really is important to work on a case by case basis. So, you know, while we're seeing an increase in digital literacy, I would say across the board, um, you know, when we were, you know, working with this project in the clinic, you know, it's also like you can have a paper copy if needed. Um, but I do think um, we are seeing digital literacy um, increase across the board there. But I don't know, Dr. Johnson, do you have anything to add on that? No, I think you're 100% right, right? And um, the flexibility of the tool. You can always print this out and you can have it where it's just um, static. But we, enjoy, I mean, I think for us, one of the other pieces that was really a, a nice function was the text to talk function, like Dana was talking about. And so you kind of lose that if it's a paper form, but you still have the, you still have the pictures if it's just a paper form. So, I mean, I, I just echo exactly what Dana noted. Yeah, I, I just I asked that and bring it up. You know, I do a lot of stuff with digital literacies, but it's interesting because in some realms we take for granted that people just kind of know how to use an iPad or a smartphone these days. Like who doesn't have a smartphone? But there are a few folks that don't. Or even if everybody has a smartphone, it might not all be uh, an Apple iPhone or it might be an Android. So, I mean, I've been an Apple user for a long time, so I don't really know Android very well. Sorry if you're an Android listener. but uh, <laughs> And so just giving a consumer, one of our clients, an iPad and saying, can you take this tool and then walking out of the room? I don't know if that's like probably not best practice, but uh, having some other tools built into the iPad, like the voice to text uh, and some other things that are fairly user intuitive are super important. I mean, I just think about like my four year old goes onto YouTube with his iPad and he doesn't know how to read yet. He's learning his sounds and letters. But he knows to press that microphone button and speak to YouTube in order to find the Pokemon show that he wants to watch. He's four. <laughs> I didn't teach him that either. <laughs> no, I mean, it's amazing how much they they can do and how much they know, right? Like, it, it's so true. Um, one of the things that we actually did for, an, we have an animated screen tool for youth, actually. And with that animated screen tool, it actually opens up with a video of like a cartoon character of me kind of talking through the directions oh, cool. for the animated tool. And so, I mean, even now that you're, you're noting this, I mean, I could see something like that for an adult version of an animated tool, right? Like, you're going to see animations, you can use text to talk, here's what the button looks like, and all of those things. Because we're thinking about the, the the many different populations you might be taking this tool. If I if I just hand it to my grandmother, um, yeah, I don't know if she's going to get there, right? Like she might not ever get to the text to talk thing or whatever. I mean, so I, I can it definitely it's making us making me think through that a little bit more too. Like even maybe a video intro might be helpful. I mean, it's like a fifteen second thing yeah. that kind of just highlights what these different points are. So that could be helpful in this too. Yeah, most people might get like, oh, there's a play button. If I tap that, it will start the the animation or the or the entire process. So that could be interesting. But I think it also y'all said something a little earlier about kind of, you know, one stress levels and just coming into an organization or a doctor's office with a level of trauma and they get handed a screening tool and you know they can't necessarily comprehend the written language that's on there whether they have the, the 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 ability to or not the stress can impede that i could totally see that so uh the video or or the pictorial displays can kind of help you calm down a little bit or at least understand it a little bit better so um anything that can you know make that client's experience 
more manageable and more meaningful, I think that's amazing. Absolutely. Uh, I'm curious if y'all, I mean, in social work, I've seen over the last decade, the resistance to technology kind of turn a page, if you will, or it's the, the resistance is definitely dropping down. There's still a fair amount of out there, and, and rightly so, when it comes to things like algorithmic bias and other things like that. But I'm wondering if y'all have seen uh, in, in your realm, in your side of human services, if there's any kind of resistance to technology adoption, whether it's related to you adapting these screening tools or, or more technology adoption in general. Yeah, I would say, in my opinion, historically, I do think um, counseling has been slower to adopt new technological methods of helping due to comfort, sure. But I also think just concerns over confidentiality. Um, people were unsure about that, right? But I do think since COVID has um, has started, we did have to rapidly shift that mindset in order um, to meet the needs of our clients within counseling. And so I think that I am seeing less um, resistance now. I think that um, due to the nature of the pandemic and having to shift, that there is more of a willingness um, to try something new and to be able to be there for our clients and helping. And so I, I think that's certainly, you know, we all know we've been on Zoom so much. So even people who were not doing um, online counseling, now they are. And we made that rapid shift. Um, and so I think that there is a lot more comfort there. Yeah, absolutely. I think so as well. I think in the beginning, people definitely were like, why is this needed? Why, what would be the need to have people doing things on iPads versus just paper and pencil? Um, I even remember with our animated tool for youth, people are like, well, can we get a printed version of this for youth? And like that defeats the whole purpose <laughs> of having a tool for youth that's animated if it's going to be paper and pencil. But I think now people, they, they just get it. They get it. They understand that leveraging technology makes, you know, makes life easier for them and for us, right? Like you can automatically get the, the results. You can automatically see trends, right? Like within your practice over the week, right? Versus kind of the, the pen and paper um, assessments that we're trying to then put in the EHR and then look individually. Um, you can just look at this at, at a whole, or you can look at it at an individual level. And I think people are really buying into the flexibility that technology allows for. Yeah. Well, that made me think too, sorry, that about, you know, we're really in an era now, I feel like of accountability and how important that is and digital tools for both assessment and then also outcome progress really allow human service organizations to efficiently and accurately track that data and technology does just really help with that. Yeah. I mean, information is power, right? And so one of the things I, I, one of the classes I teach here at CSUSM is a program evaluation class. And I tell my students that all the time <laughs> that yep. if you're not tracking things, if you're not measuring things, you're not going to be able to know if it's effective. And so some of these, the tools can allow some of this. And I think it's always important. You, you mentioned uh, about confidentiality. And so that's paramount. We always have to attend to the ethical and appropriate use of technology. So that's super important. Absolutely. Well, what do you think is the future of technological screening tools? What do you think the future holds for these tools? What an exciting question, right? Like, I mean, I really hope that more tools move to a just, just this digital environment. I think it's, it's, beneficial for two reasons, right? It's beneficial to the provider, of course, but it's also beneficial to the to the patient who's or the client who's taking the tool. Like for me to be able to see results and see an intervention right there, right on the screen, I think is is 
extremely helpful. So one of the things that we were looking forward to with this social health screening tool is that you could integrate it, you know, places would be able to integrate it with uh, websites such as findhelp.org. So you would be able to, have a patient, I would be able to take the tool if I say yes to, I need transportation, yes to finances, yes to food, automatically resources based on my zip code would be sent to my email, to my text message, right? Or I can print them out. And I think that to me is remarkable, right? Versus the old way where we would take these tools, someone would look at it in the back um, at some point in time, and then maybe next time someone would share some resources with me, right? Like things are happening quickly. People need resources and they need services right away. Um, People are coming in more and more with crises, right? And so we don't have time to really wait and review it later after this next, you know, patient, after this next client comes in. And so using a digital technology allows us to do all of that stuff pretty rapidly. It also allows us to like alert when, if someone is saying like they have more than five, right? Unmet needs, that might send us an alert where we know for sure that needs to be addressed before we even talk about their anxiety today, right? Because maybe that is the reason why they have anxiety is because of, you know, the housing, the food, the transportation issue and all of those things. And so that's where I'm hoping that it moves to. I'm hoping that it moves to um, increase patient care, but also it increases the quality of care that uh, clients are receiving too and the quickness in care, right? I was just thinking about this the other day when we have to refer someone for psychiatric uh, resources or needs, the wait list is like six or nine months, right? I mean, like that, we have to figure out a way to speed that up. And telemental health is allowing for some more rapid, you know, things to happen, but there, there's much improvement to be made. And I think it starts with the assessments, right? Like if I have several people filling out assessments, I can then prioritize who I see first based on, you know, how high they score in these different assessments versus just, all right, first come first serve, you call first, so I'll see you first. But if this person is um, identifying 10 different unmet needs, maybe they do need to be squeezed in and saw first. And so I'm hoping that um, making these assessments electric, electronic will lead to, to better services and quicker services as well. We want to get to people before it becomes an emergency, before it becomes a crisis, for sure. Yeah, I could see how that would be so helpful uh, going back to my mental health days when working the the on-call over the weekend, which yeah. I didn't particularly enjoy as a therapist that gave me a lot of anxiety, but yeah. <laughs> uh, having some extra tools and some extra help in that regard would be amazing. So absolutely. what else do you think is next like for human service organizations that are looking at screening and, and tech, uh, any kind of tools? Where do you think we go from here? I think just broadly, I'll say, you know, if we're going to be social justice advocates in our work, we have to look into how accessible all facets of our human service organizations are. And I, um, you know, and I do think that these digital tools for assessment can really increase accessibility into our services. And so I do hope that, you know, across the board, human service professionals are going to look into um, UDL and into using these um, new and creative digital means of increasing accessibility to services. Um, But, you know, I'll let Dr. Johnson talk a little bit more about future research directions. Well, I mean, this is the interesting thing about technology and human services, right? Like it's, it's, 
endless. There's so many different things you can do and so many different directions you can go in. I mean, people are doing virtual reality uh, training for human service professionals. They're doing virtual reality treatment for um, people with PTSD who are experiencing PTSD. So there, there's so many different things uh, and so many different places and entrance points, right? And so what I always tell um, providers and human service organizations is that start where you can, right? And, and just start where you can. Like, what can you make digital? What can you increase accessibility? on, right? Um, and thinking about ways in which you can uh, keep the workflow moving quickly, right? Like, so maybe spending a little bit more time on the front end with digitizing this form will then speed up the workflow later on. And so there's some benefit there. Also, I think that being creative around the collaborations that you make is important, right? And that would help speed up the ability to infuse technology and leverage technology a little bit more for your practice. In terms of research moving forward, I think, you know, we kind of touched on some of these pieces, but a lot of what I want to do next is just moving to more of this animated platform for assessing for social determinants of health. And my focus right now is specifically on youth, animate, you know, looking at youth and how animated tools are useful for youth. Right now, we only assess parents' uh, social terms of health, right? So we assess youth by proxy of parents. And so I think that it's important to get a handle on what are youth experiencing? Like, and what are they identifying as their most important needs, their most important needs? right now. Um, just from the, the, the small pilot studies that we do, we notice that parents and child diets don't always report the same social terms of health needs, right? A parent might identify housing security as a, a, the most important need, and a child might be saying food insecurity is the most important need, right? And so we need both sides of that story in order to ensure that they have um, the adequate resources and needs. And so I think that that's pretty much the next step is just kind of looking more into how can we continue to create accessibility with um, screening for social determinants of health, specifically with youth. Yeah, I love that. And I think on behalf of all human service providers, especially frontline workers doing progress notes, any help to get those done is going to be welcomed. <laughs> right, absolutely. <laughs> Maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> well, I have absolutely enjoyed this conversation today. Thank you, Dr. Johnson. Thank you, Dr. Brookover, so much for joining us on the Husita podcast. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having us. Yes, thank you. The Husita Podcast is a production of the Human Services Information Technology Association. If you have any ideas or suggestions for the podcast, please connect with us on our website at www.husita.org, on Twitter at husita.org, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash husita.org. Be sure to rate the podcast and share it with your networks to help us create a world where information technology is used to promote the social good and human well-being. My name is Jimmy Young. You can also connect with me on Twitter at JimmySW. Thanks for listening to the podcast.